most people are looking at retirement as if they're running away from something. They're running away from the travel, the meetings, the corporate, all of the hustle. So they're focused at getting away from that pain. And a good planner, I think, mentally helps people really define what they're running to, which is an attraction. And I think that's a much healthier way to plan and create that successful transition. That's the Retirement Answer Man, Roger Whitney, CFP. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, he talks about his book, Rock Retirement, a simple guide to help you take control and be more optimistic about the future. Roger was kind enough to give us 10 copies to give to Your Money, Your Wealth listeners for free. To get yours, just visit your moneyyourwealth.com and click special offer. Learn how to enjoy your journey to retirement to its fullest. Your free gift from our guest, Roger Whitney, and Your Money, Your Wealth. Also on the show today, in some states, you may be able to pay your state taxes as a charitable donation and get a tax deduction. But Joe and Al explain why you might want to be careful with that. Plus, five hidden taxes that could bite you in retirement. The fellows help a listener make the most of her passive losses. And what's the latest with the deductibility of home equity loans? Here to tell us everything we need to know, it's Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Hey, you found us! <laughs> wow, you are excited today, brother. I am. Oh, I can't wait for this show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. <laughs> hey, Alan, uh, let's talk a little bit about some tax law okay. um, right out the chute here. We're okay. just going to get deep in the stuff, like 30 seconds in. <laughs> That's This is serious. Yes, because it's very interesting to me of what's going on in some of these high-tax, high-income tax states. Yes. Such as New York, uh, Jersey. Right. And it's slowly, hopefully, making its way right, here to, out to west. California. To California, yeah, they, where you and I live. Yes. Yeah. So here, here's what's happening, Joe. So as you know, and probably uh, our listeners know, that uh, with this new tax law, you can only deduct $10,000 of your state taxes and property taxes combined. So if you live in California and have a million-dollar home, your property taxes are already probably over $10,000. And then your state taxes, you basically don't get any deduction at all because you're over that $10,000 limit. And so for certain states, like in the middle of our country, the Midwest, that have low tax rates and maybe lower property taxes, no big deal. But for those that live on the East Coast, the West Coast, where property values are higher, so property taxes are higher, state taxes are higher, it's a gigantic deal. And so some states have been trying to do little workarounds, and New York was the first one that came up with this workaround. This was in April. They said, you know what? Before December 31st, you can pay some of your state taxes. We'll call that a charitable deduction. You have to declare it as a charitable deduction. Of course, if you overpay your stack, it's a charitable deduction, but that will count towards payment of your income taxes. So if I owe $40,000... Um, in state taxes, right, and I have a million dollar home, hypothetically. Sure. So the ten thousand dollars I'm already paying to the for property for, for taxes. property taxes. That's the most you can take already. And then so I also pay another forty thousand dollars or twenty thousand or ten thousand doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever that number is, I can now take that state tax bill and say 
I'm paying it to a charity? Yeah, the state has set up a nonprofit to pay for your state tax obligation because it's, it's. I mean, a government's a nonprofit anyway. So New York State said, hey, we created a nonprofit organization. Yeah. You pay us and we're going to pay your state taxes. We'll count that dollar for dollar as coming off your taxes. And then you get the tax deduction. Because now it's a charitable deduction, not right. a state deduction or a, a state tax deduction. A, exactly. Yeah. So that's what New York did. And uh, that was in April. In May, uh, it was um, it was New Jersey, I think, that that said, "Okay, we want to do the same thing." And, and the governor signed into law the ability to do that. Okay, so that seems pretty good until now. This month of June, that we're in, IRS spoke up and said, "Hey, wait a minute! Uh, you should be pretty careful before you start claiming these deductions because we don't agree with this." We're the ones, the federal government is the one that decides what is a charity and what's not, and we very likely will not accept these as charitable deductions. And so, in other words, Joe, if you go ahead and use this strategy, there's a risk that the IRS could come in and say, no, this is not a charitable deduction. They might catch this two or three years after the fact. You have to pay the back taxes plus interest plus penalties. So that's what the warning is all about. So I don't understand this. Right. You got a state of New York, which is fairly large. Sure. And the governor signs the damn thing. Right. And it's like, all right, and everyone's on board, the state legislator, <laughs> all right, let's I mean, these are smart people. Right. They don't consult or they're like screw it. I think that was the approach. It's like we don't agree with this federal law. Yeah, so yeah, we don't agree with you, feds. Yeah, and then the feds are gonna come back to the states and then we're gonna have this ultimately the feds have a little more power. I think than the states, but it, it'll be an interesting battle. So now California, I feel like I'm like living back in the 1800s here, with <laughs> <laughs> the states have more power than the feds, and the feds have more power. Right. So I, I was uh, I was talking to our our, our our planners and advisors about this uh, actually on Thursday, and and so here's here's what we talked about is is you know well what happens? I mean, if you claim this, well, just what I said, the IRS can come back after the fact and say no, this wasn't really a deduction. You owe the extra taxes. But plus, by the way, we got interest and penalties. Now, probably, although I don't know for sure, probably the taxpayer will not be um, assessed a, a substantial underpayment penalty or gross negligence because they relied on the, the advice of the state. Although I don't know that for sure, right. but that's but because those so are, now people are going to get thrown in jail for fraud, right? Tax evasion. So then I was explaining because I I used to be a tax preparer myself and did that for for decades, two plus decades. Wow. That's a big word. Almost almost three. <laughs> you don't want to say 30 years? <laughs> Not really. Two plus. <laughs> so, and I can tell you, I, 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 you get to know your clients. Sure. And I can tell you, I could even to this day think about which ones would say, no way, we're not going to rock the boat. And I can tell you which ones would say, hell yes, let's do it. Right, right, right. Let's let them catch me. Sure. Right? And so I think different taxpayers and different accountants are going to take a different view on this. So we'll see what if this happens in California, where we live. But it's already happened in New, New, New Jersey, New York. Connecticut is considering it. California is considering it. I, I mean, we talked a little bit about this, I think, back in January. Right. You know, when, and, when and we I, were hearing some and I, scuttlebutt and I, about this. And I basically said, I don't, I don't see this happening because the IRS controls. And I still believe that. But anyway, it's interesting the states, uh, at least a couple of them, have already said, Forget it. Screw you. We're gonna we're right, gonna right, do right, this right, right. and catch us if you can. What what are you gonna do, Al? If California signs that, I don't know. Up to up to decide, right? I'm, I'm, you know what? I, I might I might be tempted to do it. 
Oh boy! Well, yeah. How about you? I know you're going to do it? I know you're accountant already. There's <laughs> yes. no way you're not going to do it. <laughs> Thank you, Al. Uh. So, if your state said make a charitable contribution and we'll pay your state taxes, would you take that gamble against the federal government? There's some risk tolerance for you. Now, Big Al will keep us apprised on how this all shakes out. So, visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date. And if you haven't checked out the website, there are a ton of great free resources there for you. This week's special offer is a copy of Roger Whitney's book, Rock Retirement, free. Just click special offer. In the white paper section of the Learning Center, you can download our 2018 tax planning guide for free. Check out the educational video clips and full episodes of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show for free. It's all free, and it's all yours at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Hey, we got a fantastic guest, uh, Roger Whitney. The Retirement Answer Man. I've been a big fan of his podcast for the last couple of years. Uh, he's good friends with a friend of our shows, Joe Salcihai from Stacking Benjamin. So I'm really excited uh, to have Roger on. Roger, welcome to the show, my friend. Huzzah! It's great to be here. That's my favorite word. Huzzah! <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations on your new book, Rock Retirement. Thank you. It's awesome that it's finally done so I don't have to think about it so much anymore. How long did it, um, so t- talk about the journey, right? So how long were you thinking about writing a book? Why did you write the book um, in, you know, everything else in between? Well, I'm not a writer. That's why I produce a podcast, first of all. Exactly. Uh, and so it was, you know, when you're not a writer and you write a book, you know, and I got help along the way, but it was about a three to four year process. Uh, and it really helped crystallize a lot of the things I talked about uh, talk about on the Retirement Answer Man show. And you got to be a lot more logical when you're putting it in print, right? It's not just words passing by in audio form. Uh, but I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of it. Well, let's walk through a couple of this because I read it and, um, you know, it, it's very logical of how you organized the book. I don't think it's a it's a great read. It's fun. Um, you know, when you look at a lot of these financial planning investment books, it's like, oh my gosh, it's just kind of the same old, same old. And, you know, after a chapter, your eyes kind of glaze and uh, you kind of hear the same things. But I can really feel your personality. And it's a lot, it's a little bit lighter, it's a little bit more fun. But I think there's a lot of really good concrete information in here that people can take down and, and start implementing right away. Yeah, one thing I when I when I started the process, I bought almost every retirement book I could find, and I, I felt the same way. It was a lot of tactical things to do, but there, I couldn't find anything that was helping people think about the issues that they're going to be dealing with. You know, if you you know, I like stoicism. Rather than give me a solution, teach me how to problem solve, and this is sort of how to think and problem solve about your life in retirement. Right, and. I, well, when you look at a lot of individuals, too, it's, well, where do they go to get financial planning advice? And I think they might listen to a radio show, a podcast, they read a book, or they might go to their parents uh, because they trust them, right? And the first chapter you have is like, hey, you know what? You are not your parents. Your retirement might look a little bit different. Uh, what, what, what did you mean by that? Yeah, it's going to look a lot different. I mean, and a lot of the planning process is still fighting the, the retirement battle that our parents had. So if you think about your parents or my parents and grandparents, for them, retirement was a lot about sitting on the park bench of life, you know, because they were so worn out from a lot more physical work. And typically they had pensions. They had, you know, historically normal life uh, lifespans. 
And they looked at retirement as this chance to sit on the park bench. You know, baby boomers, and that's all that I work with, they're looking at retirement very differently. And generally, they don't have a pension or it's a lot smaller. They got a lot of assets they have to manage, which is scary. They're going to live longer than any generation in history, period, but also in retirement. So if you take a 60-year-old today, statistically, they have a chance of living 50-50 up to 90 or past 90. And they're looking at, you know, primarily what I hear, and I don't know what you hear, is people are looking at retirement as their chance to finally live and go do things, not sit on the park bench. They want to be in the playground, which creates a lot of different issues that you got to make sure you tackle if you're trying to retire. Right. And I think that dives in nicely to to the next chapter, because if you take a look at retirees today, I mean, their retirement years might be longer than their working years, where they, they, they don't necessarily have the fixed income, the pensions um, that maybe their parents or grandparents had. Um, they're living a heck of a lot longer. They're a lot healthier. They're more active, where, you know, they're not in the field plowing and their bodies are broken down in previous generations where they just want to sit on a park bench. Uh, but today's generation is like, all right, well, here, I want to do different things. I've been you know, locked to my desk for the last 30 years. Now I want to experience life. And so that brings a lot more challenges, um, but a lot more opportunities, I think. A lot more opportunities if we think more creatively, because normal financial planning still focuses only on saving and investing and building. You know, the, the number one question I get always is, what's my number? How much do I need at retirement? Which is basically, if you're a math geek, that's a net present value of an annuity at the beginning of retirement is usually how that's solved for. Well, that worked for our grandparents or our parents, but for us, that number is huge. So what ends up happening is we get discouraged because the the solutions were typically typically offered. Hey, you're going to have to save more. You're going to have to work longer, or you're going to have to settle for less in retirement. And those all sort of suck. Yeah, right. I don't like any of that. <laughs> and there are a lot more things we have control over if we're thinking creatively. Right. <laughs> well, let's get creative. What, what what is some of the advice that you would give? Because you're right. You know, uh, you take a look at the, the the number. Right. Hey, I'm used to spending. $100,000 a year, and I want to spend 30 years in retirement, and my Social Security is going to give me 30, so I need 70 plus tax plus the cost of living. Well, I need a few million dollars. And yeah. it's like, damn, I only have a, you know, I had a half a million. I thought I was pretty wealthy. And now you're telling me I need, you know, three times that, four times that. So what, what are some of the ways that people can creative, um, even though they might have, they're, they're working hard, they're saving as much as they can, uh, but they still want to enjoy or rock, you know, retirement? No pun intended there. <laughs> Put away. I think two things. I'll give you two examples. One is traditionally we think of retirement like a light switch, right? We're either working full time and, and hammering it or we're not. It's, it's binary. We're either working or we're not. And I think there, that is, a, again, another outdated way of thinking about it. When I survey my, my listenership and I look at my client base, my listenership says when they define retirement, 70 what it means to them is having more time freedom to pursue things that they are interested in. It's not the absence of work. So one tweak, I think, is rather than think of retirement like a light switch, think of it like a dimmer switch. And we use a concept called pre-tirement, which is that in-between stage where maybe you're working 
and earning a lot less than you're getting in your career, but you're doing something, one, that you enjoy that might not be what your career is, and two, gives you time freedom to pursue things, but still keeps you in the game from a work perspective to give you third, the income to sort of bridge the gap between full-time work and, you know, quote-unquote retirement. So that's number one. Number two is a lot of us think of when we're planning for retirement, we think about our spending. Let's say $100,000 is my lifestyle, and most people don't want to decrease their lifestyle in retirement, is what we'll do is what you said, is we'll assume we're spending $100,000. we got to increase that by inflation over the period of our retirement to keep up with lifestyle. And then we plan that way, which is really a horrible way of planning because we don't spend that way. And that compounding of interest over 30 to 35 years could end up being a number well north of a half million dollars a year in spending. So one another tweak you could do to buy you more life when you're young and healthy is to phase it in between go-go years with that early retirement when you want to go experience things and then a mid-level of slow-go years where you slow your spending down because you're done traveling. And then lastly, those no-go years, which is sort of like your grandparents when you're ready for the park bench. So I think those are two more creative ways that you can actually help solve this equation. Yeah, I think you're dead on. Uh, but w- with with that planning, too, th- there, there comes a little bit more um, complications, if you will. And, and what I mean by that is that, all right, well, let's say that I'm going to retire a little bit earlier. But in my earlier years of retirement, those go-go years, is that I want to spend a little bit more money. Right, I want to travel. I want to experience. And you've been doing this a long time, and and you know very well that hey, if there's a, a downturn in the overall market with sequence of return risk and everything else, now I'm at my peak spending years in retirement in the beginning, and then all of a sudden I get hit with a, a bear market. So you have to be very careful on how you're you're, you're planning this and where the cash flow is going to come from, and how you're going to supplement the income and how that portfolio looks, because that 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 could devastate someone. In, in a sense, if they're spending a lot more and then they're slowing their spending down later in life and, and they're not really understanding how you know markets work or how to create that income. Yeah, it, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, the two, two solutions are to that is one is the fact that you're still working in that pre-retirement phase actually gives you a lot more flexibility because if life hits you in the face, <laughs> which it does. Yeah, and like, was that a line by Mike Tyson, right? Everyone has a plan until you get hit in the face. Exactly. <laughs> well, in the face. Just look at me. Uh, <laughs> that you are, you still have your, you're still in the game. You still have skills. You still have a, a, a professional network so you could dial up the income. Um, it gives you, and it also emotionally makes you feel more secure because you're still generating income. But on the investment management side, that's a really good point. And this is just my opinion, but. You know, we're used to investing for accumulation, right? which means I got a lot of time, I'm contributing a lot of money, and volatility and, and compounding is my friend. Most of us have a hard time mentally making the switch to, that's not the game anymore when you're near or at retirement. It, you don't have, volatility is not your friend, you're not contributing a lot of money, you may be taking money out, and you really don't have near as long of time frame as you have. Like you said, sequence of returns, that 10 years right around retirement is crucial. So it's much more about having some income, cash flow, which is a, you know, like a tailwind. And 
consistency of returns is almost more important than what your average return is. Uh, well, yeah, without question, and well said. And and a few a few other thoughts too on uh, on this topic is, you know, as I retire or pre-retire, right? So maybe there's still an income there. Um, and where I can supplement, or maybe I'm not pulling or not pulling as much from the portfolio. But I think what's more important too, in, in a lot of sense, is that hey, I'm I'm slowly transitioning into retirement. I'm not switching that light switch off because what we find is that if someone that that had a very active career and all of a sudden they try to shut that thing off, I mean it blows them up. I mean emotionally, I mean it's just like well now I'm bored, now I'm depressed, and you still have to find that purpose. And I think by slowing this thing down a little bit and getting on an off ramp versus just shutting that light switch off also helps people just to to realize, hey, I can slow this thing down, still have purpose, still have fun, um, but still have that constructive in my life uh, of being productive. Yeah, and you guys do. You guys have walked this journey multiple times with clients, right? Most people, if are looking at retirement as if they're running away from something. They're running away from the travel, the meetings, the corporate, all of the hustle. So they're focused at getting away from that pain. And a, a good planner, I think, mentally helps people really define what they're running to, which is an attraction. And I think that's a much healthier way to plan and create that su- successful transition. So good point. Dream big about your retirement. Oh, this is a big one. It, yeah, this is a big one. You got to dream big, right? Yeah, I think most people dream way too small about their future, partly because of how traditional planning works, because everything is about sacrifice and these bad choices that we talked about further. My, you know, think about it if you're going into a negotiation, right? You want to know what is everything. If I could just get in here and just get everything through this negotiation, what would that be? So my suggestion is go into your retirement planning, setting it up so it actually won't work when you do the numbers. I would rather it not work on the first iteration because then you've gotten all these dreams, these needs, wants, and wishes on the table. And then you, by doing that, you can start to prioritize to hopefully get as much of what the things you actually care about most. And I don't see that happening enough. What I see happening is through normal advice and through all the messaging we're getting about the retirement crisis is people are coming in already sacrificing a lot of their life. Um, and particularly when you're dealing with, you know, we have a retirement crisis that people just don't have money. I get that and haven't been able to save because of being hit in the face or whatever. But there's a different kind of retirement crisis for people that financially are pretty independent. And that crisis is that they're sitting there at 60, even if they're financially sound, and they're looking at all of the uncertainties of hyperinflation, deflation, rising interest rates, stock market crashes, and they want to be safe because they're good stewards, and a lot of these people end up dying with too much money. Yeah, And that's, different kind, that's a nice, elegant crisis to have, but there are, that is still sort of sad. Yeah, I've, I've heard it um, phrased as that just-in-case retirement, you know, where they have these dreams and aspirations of maybe buying the RV and traveling the world or traveling the U.S. national parks or maybe going to Europe or buying a small cabin or something like that, but they never pull the trigger because they feel, you know, just in case something happens where we need some of that cash flow, right? And so they don't buy the RV. They don't, you know, buy the nice log cabin or, you know, they don't travel or or, or do whatever. And then you're right. They die. 
and then the kids inherit the money, and you know what they do with it, right? Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they spend it. They go to Europe, right? And they buy the RV. <laughs> exactly. At the end of the day, you know, it, financial planning and advice – used to be about you go to this expert, you give them all this documentation, they take it and they come back with the plan and give you the solutions, right? Modern retirement, in my opinion, is not about getting solutions, it's about learning how to think and manage change, which is having lots of little conversations, so whether you get punched in the face or you get pushed forward by a good tailwind, you continually reevaluate everything and make lots of little changes along the way. So it's less about solutions. It's more about a collaboration to make the most of the only life you have. I think what happens, too, in, th in thinking big, which I think is a really important thing in retirement, I think some people, they think so big that they act before really thinking about it. For example, they want, they want, they've had this dream of being in an RV for, for a year. Right, and they've never done it, and so they buy this four hundred thousand dollar RV, and they realize after a week, oh, this really, this really isn't for me. But you can actually rent one and try it out, or they go on vacation to Hawaii, and they go, we got to have a place here, and they go buy a place, and they never go back. So I think you got to, got to try some of these things out before you even execute. That's a great point, and because it's all about making little decisions, you know, it's great. Like great by choice is a great book. It's like you make, you know, shoot little bullets and test things and then ultimately shoot the cannonball when you already have all the data. Okay. This is really what I want. Yeah. Cause, and, and that's what a good advisor or a good process can help you work through is like that. Great example of that is I have a client that retired about three weeks ago and she owns some property in another state on the coast. And when we first started working together, she was going to build this million dollar home when she retired. And she had been there during the summertime and it has rough winters. And so the plan was rather than just go build the house prior to retirement is now she's going to go rent there for a year while she goes through the process and make sure she's there during the high season and the low season meet the people, and then after a year of renting, start the process of building just to test it, just in case she doesn't want to be there. <laughs> We're talking to Roger Whitney. He's the retirement answer man. Uh, go to rogerwhitney.com to get more information. Hey, uh, Roger, I know you're a busy guy. I, I thank you very much for joining us. Any final words or words of wisdom or thoughts that you can share with us and our audience? This has been a blast. I think it's just about managing change and making lots of little smart decisions, not trying to get it right. So I appreciate it, guys. Go to um, If you listen to podcasts, Retirement Answer Man um, by far is one of the best. Um, Roger, I'm a huge fan, and uh, it was a real pleasure chatting with you today. Roger, that has been awesome. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Rock retirement, brother. Visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com and click Special Offer to get your free copy of Rock Retirement, a simple guide to help you take control and be more optimistic about the future by Roger Whitney, CFP. Set yourself up for a retirement that does not suck. We only have 10 copies of Rock Retirement, so don't wait. Go to YourMoneyYourWealth.com now and click Special Offer. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture in handy bullet point format. This week, five hidden taxes in retirement. This came to us from NerdWallet. NerdWallet? Yep, I think it was also in the uh, New York Times. Cool. Uh, but anyway, so I got five different things that you need to be aware of in terms of your retirement. 
One, it relates to Social Security income because it, depending upon your income level, more or less, or in some cases none, of your Social Security income is taxable. And it depends on something called provisional income. So you take your, your normal income plus municipal bond interest, and you take, except for Social Security, because you only take half of that, whatever that number is, then you go to this chart to see how much is taxable. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're single and it's, uh, if it's less than uh, $25,000, you don't pay any taxes on Social Security. But it's between twenty five and 34000 You could pay tax on up to half of your benefits. And over 34000 you can pay tax on up to 85% of your benefits. So interestingly enough, a lot of people don't realize that with Social Security, depending upon your other income levels, it may or may not be taxable. And it may be taxable as much as 85% of it would be taxable. Another way to say that, maybe it's easier to understand, 15% would be tax-free, or maybe 50% would be tax-free, or all of it would be tax-free, depending upon your income level. And here's the, the, the gist of Social Security planning and tax planning, which all of you need to understand, is that once you get in these weird zones, Right, because sometimes your social security is not taxed, right, and then all fifty percent of it, or then an additional thirty-five percent of it's taxed, or if you combine the two, it's eighty-five percent. And so, what can happen is that people can run into like a forty-seven percent tax bracket. Yeah, just about because now what you're doing, like let's say you're right at the at the precipice of the fifty percent and the eighty-five percent tax, which is uh, uh, forty, what did I say, thirty-two thousand mm-hmm. or forty-four thousand. No, that's married. $34,000. So, so let's say you make another $100. And so you make $34,100. And so you're thinking, all right, well, I'm... Or I'm, you pull $100 out of your I, retirement yeah, account. Yeah, okay, that, right, exactly. And you're thinking, I'm at a 12% tax bracket. I'm only going to pay 12%. Well, actually, that's not exactly true because now you're going to have that extra $100 that's going to be taxed at 85% as well. So, so you're actually going to have... Uh, probably another 8% tax on that, so about 20% tax plus the state tax. So what happens is this, is that when additional dollar is added to your income, right, when you're in this zone, then that means an additional dollar of Social Security tax is going to happen. And depending on where you fall on that grid, then it's like a dollar eighty-five is subject to tax. Right. Right, so you pull a dollar out, and then all of a sudden you're taxed at a dollar eighty-five. Right, because now more of the Social Security is taxable. You got it, and then so let's just say if you're at the twenty-five percent tax bracket, you know that's a forty-seven percent tax. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just be careful because people fall into this trap often, and what you're trying to do is to limit amount of tax that you're paying. And some people, you know, if you're making X amount of dollars. You know, then you're just kind of stuck with, with with the tax. It is what it is. But if you've done some planning along the way, um, because what's interesting is that Roth IRAs, um, they do not have the they're not included in provisional income. Yeah. So you pull money out of you a can Roth pull a hundred thousand dollars out of a Roth IRA. It doesn't show up anywhere. The, and then you you live off your Social Security. Let's say your Social Security is forty grand. You pull a hundred grand from your Roth. You have a hundred forty thousand dollar income. Zero tax on everything. Right. Yeah, it's a great thing. And if you have Roth IRAs, and if you're right near these zones, then you want to take a look, should I be pulling from the regular IRA or the Roth, depending upon are you in this higher tax rate? Right. Second thing is state taxes could take another bite. It sure can. That's not a mystery. California, we know the highest rate's 13.3%. Um, 
But um, and a lot of states uh, have uh, Social Security being tax free. California being one of them. But there's 13 states, Colorado, Connecticut, Kansas, and others, that actually do tax Social Security. So just be aware of that. California tax-free, right? Tax-free. Tax-free in California. Seven states don't have any income tax at at all. Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. And then there's a couple states, New Hampshire and Tennessee, that only tax dividends and interest. By the way, Hawaii does not tax government pension plans. Yeah, retirement plans. Yeah, retirement plans. Yeah, yeah Michigan defined, also defined benefit has some, plans. Yeah, um, a, a bunch of different states have different rules. They, they have they have different rules. So just be aware of that. The third thing is that required minimum distributions may may trigger higher taxes. So that's that rule. We talk about this all the time. When you're 70 and a half years old, you have to start taking money out of your IRAs and your 401ks. You have to take out, uh, it's almost 4%. It's 3.65% to be exact. In that first year, each year, the amount that you take out increases because your life expectancy decreases. So figure about 4%. So if you got a million dollars in your 401ks and IRAs, 4% of that's $40,000. That's additional income that you have to take out of your IRA 401k, whether you want to or not. So just be aware of that. All of a sudden, you can be in a higher tax bracket. You can make more of your Social Security income taxable. You can push yourself into higher brackets for your other income and, and be paying a lot more taxes. Yeah, you just uh, have to look at, when you're looking at Social Security claiming strategies, your retirement um, distribution strategies, you have to look at all of this because it's all intertwined. And if you do it properly, you can really save significant amount of money. If you, you know, you just say, "Hey, I'm going to let all this stuff defer and then pull it out later," um, we see people just jump into, you know, a, a bracket that they weren't necessarily anticipating. Yeah, and I think a big mistake is when people first retire, let's say 65, just to throw out a date, and they're and they're they have money outside of retirement accounts. Their taxes are very low. They think, "Wow, this is so Joe and I right. we're, we're not right. The tax rates nothing." Yeah, they're just you know and, depleting their cash. Right, and, and not touching their retirement. And then they get to 70 and a half and then they've got a giant tax bill and they what they should have done when they were 65 in a very low tax bracket is do Roth conversions to avoid as much of a problem later on. Number four, Joe, is how home sales can cause unexpected tax bills. And this is... Uh, Maybe not true for some, some uh, maybe some places in the Midwest, but certainly California, the coasts where real estate's higher. There is an exclusion. It's $250,000 per person, married couple $500,000. But a lot of people have gains of over that amount. And if your gains are over that amount, it's, t- it's subject to the capital gains rate, which is 0, uh, 15, and 20%, right, plus the uh, 3.2%. 8% Medicare surtax. So just be aware of that. And something that a lot of people miss is if you did claim home office on your home, that's depreciation, that gets recaptured. You have to pay tax on that depreciation that you took previously. The $500,000 exclusion doesn't count. You know, we ran into, um, remember those uh, that, that younger couple that came in? Um, that one that we met? Well, they were like 23, 24, just married. And the gentleman's mom passed away, and she had a ten million dollar home. Yeah, in, okay, in I, Del Mar. Yes, I do remember. Right, that. it uh-huh. just looked over the, and, and that was the only asset that they right. had. Right, and so um, they were. That, that's what they inherited. Right, and it's like, well, we got to pay 
some estate tax. We got to pay, and then we got to sell the house to do that. And then, right. I mean, it, it was just a nightmare it, it, because it, he, you know, it was the family home. It's been in the you know sure. um, family for generations. Well, and, and that that is, and that's when the estate tax limits were lower. So you're right. There wasn't a state tax. Now they, the the estate got to step up in basis, so there was no capital gain on the home sale. But they had to sell the home to, to pay, pay the, the estate, estate tax, tax. right? Which is was part of the argument for increasing the estate tax to about eleven point two million almost per person, and the other liquid asset I think that was uh, retirement account. So you either blow out of the retirement account yeah, to pay, pay the estate tax, so right. then you're paying tax to pay tax. Yes, right. Uh, but the retirement account wasn't large enough to pay the estate tax, so they would have to sell the the, the family home to pay the estate yeah. Tax. And and speak- but I mean, woe is me, right? You got a eleven million dollars. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, we all love those problems, right? <laughs> <laughs> the fifth thing related is beware of a state a state and inheritance taxes. So we know that the feds increased it to about eleven point two million per person. See how we just I know it's just perfect. perfect. I mean, it's like, see that, Andy? It's like we it's, it's like we practiced it. But uh, a, a few states uh, there's there's twelve states, Joe, that uh, that levy estate taxes in Hawaii, Maine, and District of Columbia. They use the same eleven point two million, but above that, it's a sixteen percent tax. Hmm. That's on top of the federal 40, estate tax, 40%. which is 40. So in those states, it's, it would be, if someone with a lot of money, it would be a 56% going to two different government, state government and federal government. Other states, um, like Oregon, that's kind of a gotcha. In, in Oregon, there's a state taxes when your state's over a million dollars. Right, right, right. Now it starts at, I think, around 4 or 5%, but it ends up at about 16% when you're over $9 million. We actually had a, a client in San Diego that's thinking of moving to Oregon, and once they saw that, they said, forget it wow. because of the state tax. And uh, your home state, Minnesota. Yeah. Once you is. once you get over two point four million, th- yeah, that's why th- I can't move thir- back. Thirteen <laughs> percent. Yeah, you can't move back. Too expensive for your future <laughs> beneficiaries, whoever yes. they may be. Well, I need to start saving some money. Yeah. Well, that too. Yes. My question is more of a strategy question, I guess. Now I have a whole bunch of money in my IRA that when I turn 70 and a half, it's going to kill me. How do I know how much money to move into a Roth? I'd like to get some information, if I can, regarding donor-advised funds. If you've got a money question, doesn't matter if it's about retirement, investing, Social Security, or taxes, call 888-994-6257 to schedule a time to talk to Joe and Big Al on Your Money, Your Wealth and get your answers. That number again is 888-994-6257, or you can email info at purefinancial.com. This is from Kristen uh, in Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, She's got a tax question for you, Big Al. All right. So they got a rental property uh, that they bought in May of 2006, spent $200,000 for it. We just sold it for $150,000 in May of 2018. Because our income was over $150,000, we had passive losses carry forward for many years. This is approximately how things will add up. So let's just pause there because this is some meat on the bone here. Just right there, right? So she's already getting into passive loss carry forward rules, Alan. So she bought the place right at the peak of the market in Boston for a couple hundred thousand dollars in 06. It is 2018. Twelve years later, it's selling. Uh, it's selling. Selling. Holy fuck! Man, where you been? It's, I was gonna say it's sold. 
or it or is selling, selling, and I selling? just combined, I Sell- combined the that's, two. That's a new word. It's selling. I, I'll know what you mean. It's it's sold or it's selling. Yes, hundred fifty grand down fifty thousand bucks in twelve years. Okay, but but she had passive losses. So here's the rule, Joe. Let's okay. let's just say. I don't know what she rented it for, but let, let's just say I'm just say a couple t- thousand bucks a month. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so that's twenty. I'll just say twenty thousand a year. All right. Okay. And let's say the expenses are eighteen thousand. So the profits two thousand dollars before depreciation. And depreciation just is you look at what you bought. You bought a property for two hundred thousand dollars. You allocate land versus building. So if the building part is 150000 the land part's 50000 that's a whole other discussion how to allocate it, but just, just say that. So it's about $5,000 of depreciation per year. So that $2,000 profit actually on your tax return looks like negative $3,000. $2,000 profit minus $5,000 of depreciation. So that $3,000 is not deductible, Joe, when your income, your adjusted gross income is above $150,000. There's a phase out there, correct? There is. From If it's below $100,000, you can deduct up to, if you have it, $25,000 of losses on rental real estate. And then it phases out between those two numbers that by the time you get to 150, you can't take any. So if you have an income over under 100,000 bucks, you can write up um, write off up to 25 grand, and that's right on the front page of the 1040. So that's a huge deduction. It is, and in this case, my little example, it's a $3,000 loss that you get to take against ordinary income or whatever kind of income you have. It's a deduction. Right. It's. Um, well, it's it's not offset. If you can, if your income's low enough, it's 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 an offset against ordinary income. Right. It's not a tax credit. Right. It's, it's a deduction which reduces your taxable income, which reduces your tax. It, but it's against. Let's say if I had wages, right. it could be, it could offset against that. Versus, let's say if I had a capital loss versus a capital gain, those two would only offset each other. Up to three thousand dollars of ordinary income. Yeah, and and sometimes I mean some people have property that's worth a million dollars or more, and so then it gets more interesting. Maybe I've got a I've got a loss. Maybe I was break even on cash flow or made a little bit of money, but on the tax return it shows that I lost thirty thousand dollars. And now if my income is below a hundred thousand dollars, I can't take the whole thirty, but I can take twenty five thousand of that as a straight deduction. The other five in that example gets carried forward to the next year. So in this example, they've made over $150,000 for the last several years, so they weren't able to take that loss off on their tax return, so it suspends on their um, on their tax return, right? It continues to carry forward. Well, it doesn't really say what they made. They sold it for one fifty, but so I don't really know how much they made. But Our income was over 150000 every year. Where do you see that? Just read, Al. Just trust me. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. That's in the second part. <laughs> I got so focused on she bought it for 200 and sold it for one fifty. Okay. All right. Cool. Fair enough. So, but so the, we've but had passive losses carrying forward for many years. Yes. This is approximately how things will add up. Yep. So okay. let me continue. Okay. Good. So they got a cost basis of two hundred thirty-five thousand dollars because they made some improvements. Depreciation schedule ninety-one thousand. Carried over losses one hundred thirty-five thousand. Sale one hundred fifty minus commission ninety-five hundred dollars and closing costs of twenty-six eighty-four. Got it. So. What I've read, we can deduct the losses from our earned income salaries, and essentially we could end up not paying any taxes on our income. So my thought on this is to work as much overtime as possible this year so we can get back in taxes all the income taxes refund due to losses on the property. Am I thinking this out properly? I am working extra hard now, and I don't 
want to continue it if it's in vain. <laughs> and paying tax. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. All right, so let's go through the math. So the cost basis, I'm going to do round numbers, Joe. 235 and depreciation, uh, we'll call it 90. Okay, so the um, after depreciation, uh, it's what, 145. That's the basis. We'll call it 150. Okay. Okay, we're doing quick math, quick, easy math. Sold it for 150. Okay, but then there's closing costs. We'll, we'll call that 140. So there's a $10,000 loss on the sale itself. Then there's passive loss carryovers of 135. So 145, call it about $150,000 loss is going to show up on your tax return as an ordinary deduction. So in other words, if your salary is $150,000 or less, then you'd pay no tax. Now, we don't know about your deductions, standard deduction, itemized deductions, uh, but at any rate, uh, single married, it says we, so I'm, I'm assuming married. So uh, the standard deduction is $24,000. So just using that simple math, you could probably make about 175 grand and pay zero tax because of this loss. So, so that's how, and this loss is fully deductible in the year of sale, and it's deductible because it was a rental property. Now, if it ever was a residence first and then became a rental, the rules are completely different. I don't want to confuse you at this point, but there are different rules. If it always was a rental in the year of sale, there's a gain or loss on sale, and any passive losses on that property that have been suspended get deducted in that year. No matter what your income is? No matter what your income is. So it's not subject to the $150,000 phase out? Correct. So if I, she makes $200,000, there's a $150,000 loss, $200,000 minus $150,000, $50,000 minus deductions, you know, yeah. whatever. So she could make up to $200,000 and still virtually pay no tax. Yeah, very little tax in that case is exactly right. So last part of this is she's like, other things to consider is my husband and I both have 401k plans and we could convert those to Roths, right? Shouldn't we do this when we are in a low tax bracket year like we possibly are this year? I forecast our 2018 combined income or wages to be 150000 bucks. Then take the net operating losses from that. We live in Massachusetts. Condo was in Florida. Thank you for your time. I hope I gave you enough information. Uh, Kristen, you gave us yeah, quite, quite, a, a, quite a bit. Very thorough. You, you Thank you us, very much. I don't even have any other questions. You, you put it all out there. So, yes, that's exactly right. You want to be considering a Roth. And we just went through this example. And if your annual wages are 152 and the loss, we just went through it, is about 150 you could convert about 70 grand. Yeah, you could, and stay in a very, very, very low bracket. Actually, more than that because of the standard the deduction. 100 grand. Yeah, probably about 100 grand and still stay in the 12% bracket with, with what we know. Right, 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 right. right. Fine-tune that with your accountant, but that's on the surface. Uh, boy, that so you pay, what, 12% tax on about $70,000 of income? It's not bad to get all oh, that. $100,000 into a Roth. Yeah, right, exactly. That's huge. It's gigantic. Right. Yeah, your effective rate would probably be close to 8%. Right. Right, so maybe $8,000 to get 100000 bucks into a Roth IRA? Right, yeah, exactly. I would do that. Every day and Tuesday, I, I I would I would too, yeah. <laughs> and and so here's a case, and th these numbers are just exactly what I would expect in Florida at this time, because May of 2006, for better or for worse, was about the top of the market, and Florida got eight, way overvalued and crashed quite significantly. Chris, I don't have to tell you, you know that. So finally, you waited all this time to almost get your money back, but that's kind of been the experience. So now you got this loss 
take advantage of the loss by not only not paying taxes on your salary, but then turn around and do some Roth conversions. And you might even want to do more than $100,000 of Roth conversions, depending upon how much you have in a 401k, what your retirement income is going to look like. So you need to do a little analysis on that. Right. Another thing to add on top of this is that they both have 401k plans too. So let's say if they're they're fully funding or fully maxing those plans out, I'm not sure how old Kristen is, but if let's say if they're over 50, you know, I'm just rounding here. So 25000 yeah. a piece on those. Right. So that's driving that income down another fifty thousand. So that can increase the Roth conversion by another fifty grand. Yeah. So now maybe it's one fifty. Now it's, uh, or more or more, and right. still stay in that twelve percent tax yeah, bracket. Right. But then you look at, hey, does it make sense for me to even do more than that? Now it's looking at, well, how much money do you have in a retirement account? I mean, if it's, you know, if, if you have a large balance, yeah, then you probably want to get as much of that thing out of there as possible. Because we got these low twenty-two and twenty-four percent brackets for the next couple of years. So for married taxpayer, the twenty-four percent bracket goes up to three hundred fifteen thousand of, of income, of taxable income, and that's way different than it was last year because of Altman. Last year at that income range, you were probably in a thirty-five percent effective rate. Now it's twenty-four. So yeah, there's some pretty interesting things Roth conversion-wise, but when you can 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 sort of combine the Roth conversion with these other losses, losses. it's very significant. It's huge. If you haven't figured it out by now, Joe and Big Al love Roth conversions. And why wouldn't they? Tax-free growth forever? To find out more, visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download the Roth IRA Basics white paper for free. Kiplinger calls the Roth IRA one of the smartest money moves you can make. If you haven't already looked into it, given our current tax brackets, now's the time. Those brackets are due to sunset in seven years, so take advantage of them while you can. Download the Roth IRA Basics white paper in the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You know, Alan, I guess we're looking at home equity loans. Yeah, we haven't really talked about this much, but uh, there is 13 and and a half million uh, individuals that have a home equity loan. I am one of those. Uh, and it's about $550 billion outstanding. There's some bad news with this new tax law in terms of deductibility on home equity loans. Yeah, that's such a gray area, though. It is, which is why I'm going to explain it over the next few minutes. All right, good. Because it'll be crystal clear after we're done. Yeah, but there's still... All right, go ahead. Yeah, here's what I got to tell you. All right. So first, first the rule changes. Here, here was the old rules, which was uh, before December 15th of 2017. You could borrow a million dollars to purchase your home, and you could borrow up to another hundred thousand uh, dollars for any purpose, for any for home equity debt, and that could be used to buy a home. It could be used to um, buy a car, go on vacation, pay off credit card debt, student loans, whatever. So it was one point one million dollars. That's that was the total that you could borrow and take a full interest deduction. If you were over and above that, there was an allocation. Some of your interest was deductible, some of it wasn't. Here's the new rule. The new rule is that for loans uh, uh, originated after December 15, 2017, it's 750,000. Okay, so if you if you got if you just bought a home, if your mortgage is more than $750,000, you cannot take the full deduction. But here's what changed substantially: is the home equity loans, the ability to borrow on your home and have the first hundred thousand dollars be tax deductible in terms of the interest expense. That's no longer available, and that's not even grandfathered in. So you you can no longer deduct interest on home equity loans unless unless, right? unless there's a big unless, and the unless is if you use it for improvements to your home. 
And so this is what I want to make clear. When you hear people say home equity loans are not deductible, that's true, except if you use your home equity loan to, to improve your home itself. And so that's that's where there's or a use one to purchase your home. Use yeah, you could use one to purchase your you home. You know how they do the yeah the eighty ten ten eighty ten ten yeah rule whatever yeah, that thing yeah, is right. you know mortgage brokers yeah, do yeah exactly yeah that would be usually that's a second mortgage but I guess it could be a home equity loan but still it's if you use money to purchase your home or improve your home but the total of that needs to be less than seven hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars if you want to take a full deduction now again if you borrow more that's okay you just don't get the full tax deduction, right? Now, you can also have two homes. You can have your primary home and a second home. You can have mortgages on both. And as long as the total mortgages used to either purchase or improve the home combined together are less than $750,000, you can take a full deduction there. If you're Again, if you're over $750,000, there'll be an allocation. Some of it's deductible, some of it's not. Got it. Now, some people will say, well, what's a home improvement? Right. That's where it gets a little gray. Yeah. Right? Is it I painted my house? Is that an improvement, or was that a maintenance? Was that a repair? Uh, and it's it's it it actually sort of depends on what accountant <laughs> you go to. A lot a lot of things are pretty clear. Got but, a, I got a question for you. Well, before you do, want, want, I want to finish the point. So landscaping, remodeling, re-roofing—that's an improvement. Uh, pool. Fi- fi- pool is an improvement, okay. right? Fixing a broken light fixture—that's probably a repair. But then there's this gray area, is, is, I suppose. <laughs> it could be, especially if it's in ground. If it's, if, it's, if it's above ground, it probably will depreciate and probably not really add much value. Oh. Yeah, that's probably be a gray area. But what's your question? So let's say an individual gets audited right. for maybe they're a small business owner and they do an S-Corp election, but they don't pay themselves a lot of income and they have a huge dividend. Okay. Okay? And so that red flags the IRS, and so they take a look at it. That person also has a home equity line. Okay. Right? Sure. And they use that home equity line to tap into it to help pay for the business. Okay. So, But they're deducting it on their tax return. Right. So when someone audits, when the IRS audits this individual, are they going to audit everything on that return? Or do they just say, hey, show me the red flag of this business? That's an excellent question. So th- this is so. first of all, I'd say about, I might get the numbers wrong, but let's say at least 80, 75, 80% of current day audits are just a mail correspondence. It's of like, just one triggering event yeah, that looks Yeah, it's, it's like... It's like we, you know, we saw you recorded this. We thought it should be this. Uh, pay us X. Uh, if you disagree, tell us why. That's how most audits are now. But you're talking about an office audit, and with with an office audit, yeah, when Will Smith, yeah, comes. right, when Will, exactly, <laughs> when when he comes, before he comes, uh, you get a letter from the IRS stating what they're looking at, and you actually only have to have that. Prepared. So, mm-hmm. in other words, there's three items. They so, want. if you got a, the, the individual that's cheating all over the place, but they only catch them on one thing. Well, here's what. But let me let me continue Sorry. because because so they'll they'll look at say those two or three things, whatever they may be, and then they'll then as a result of doing the audit, when they come out, they may catch other things and then require additional 
documentation at that point. Yeah, so so it's it's why some people like like for example, if they're taking some semi-aggressive positions on things, you might not want to claim like a really high charitable deduction or a home office or things that could trigger red flags. You certainly want to make sure that you're you're reflecting your your W2s, 1099s correctly so you don't have a mismatch. You kind of want the return to flow through as best as possible. Just be honest, folks. Yeah, well, that's the best uh, policy. Um, you know, I, I don't have cable, so I just have Apple TV. Oh, really? Yeah. You're really modern then. Uh, yeah. I, I, I still have cable. I'm not so I'm not I'm, sure why. I'm watching um, We'd, Homeland. We have did, you ever seen that? No. No. You don't like good TV, do you? What are you watching? What do I watch? What's your show right now that you're watching? Uh, we watch basically two shows. Anne likes to watch the monologue of Stephen Colbert, and we watch Jeopardy. Oh, my God. That's what we watch. <laughs> How many times have you watched Jeopardy? Where's Wheel of Fortune, brother? No, that's not educational. <laughs> Jeopardy, at least there's educational value. So do you guys have a little big buzzer there? You we guys, should. Oh, my God. We should. Oh boy! <laughs> have you seen Shawshank Redemption yet? Yeah, I've seen that. Okay, I thought uh, you have. You hadn't seen it, so I just I'm just g- giving you some ideas, maybe for the weekend. No, I've seen. I saw, I saw that years ago. Okay, all right. You're thinking of another movie. No, have you seen Tombstone yet? No. Okay. Well, That's I'm gonna, what I I'm going to make a list for you. Yeah, please make a list of things I must see. It, must see TV, must see from TV and movies. You know, guys, help me out with this. The guys <laughs> sheltered live Jeopardy. <laughs> And the monologue of Stephen Colbert. Yeah, I'd much rather shoot myself. <laughs> All right, have a great weekend, everyone. We'll see you next week. Show's cut your money well. Stephen Colbert and Jeopardy. I'll take good TV for a thousand, Alex. Special thanks to today's guest, Roger Whitney. Visit rogerwhitney.com to learn more on how you can rock retirement. Subscribe to this podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, or you can find us on the brand new Google Podcasts app for Android. For you iPhone users, we're on Apple Podcasts, which of course used to be called iTunes. Which is where you can still check out our ratings and reviews. Or you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Player FM, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you've got a burning money question for Joe and Big Al to answer live on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com or call and leave it in a voicemail at 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Have a good one, friends.